No matter if the economy is up or down, healthcare careers continue to grow, especially in management. Stevenson University Online's Master's in Healthcare Management can put your career on a new track, especially for career changers with previous business, HR, or technology backgrounds. Discover new opportunities with our Healthcare Management Masters. No GREs, no application fees, and 100% online. Visit online.stevenson.edu slash healthcare management. Welcome to Mouth Off, a podcast brought to you by Forget Me Not Productions. I'm Clary Sadler and so far on the series I've interviewed a range of interesting individuals from all walks of life. Individuals who might consider in some capacity to empower marginalised communities. On this episode I'll be talking to Patrick Jones, a leading author, poet and playwright from South Wales. In 2004, Patrick was voted the most innovative poet and playwright in the top 100 heroes of Wales. He is also somewhat of a filmmaker, having made several videos for Welsh heroes, Manic Street Preachers. Patrick's writing regularly explores subjects closely associated with his homeland, such as the decline of the iron, steel and coal industries, a decline that has affected the working classes in South Wales. He often focuses on the subsequent social and economic fallout that this has had for decades. From the mouths of corpses, the seeds will fly. Into inside, our ocean is. Like weeds eclipsed by yellow suns, light shall stutter through. Wait and watch, the epiphany said, collapse and start again. Be a companion to isolation, a friend of regret. Slow breeze blowing through time, a child's breath shall mend our sight. In the starting clocks of unending daylight, so lay down in seed dawn, away from your deep cut night. The inherent beauty of searching souls, scratching this sacred earth for another place. Because with these holes, we, we become whole. So fly, fly, fly away. What we have been is what we are. Mother of millions and fathers of forever. So fly, fly, fly away. And what breaks shall become. Because what breaks shall become. And we, we are the traces. The traces left for the next, the next, the next. Patrick, thanks for coming on the show. Would you mind introducing yourself and telling us what it is you do? Yeah, uh, my name is Patrick Jones, uh, and I'm a writer. I write plays, poetry, and film scripts. And I also go and do a lot of work in the community using words uh, in therapeutic in, in its widest sense um, with different different. Uh, organizations and groups of people perhaps who are perhaps should we say forgotten by society um so i i, I enjoy doing that and i always feel that's just as important as my own writing really I, um, but that's what i do <laughs> thank you so forget me not productions as you know a little bit about us already we're an inclusive arts organization we specialize in working with marginalized groups and that could include people with complex disabilities the LGBTQ plus community, working class communities, people with mental health issues, people from black minority ethnic communities, women, care home residents, many more really. The list yeah. goes on. So from what I know of you, from what you've just said about yourself, I do think of you as a voice for the marginalized, a firm advocate for equality. Would you say that was your calling or... Did your own lived experience influence this in some way? Probably a bit of both, really. I, I definitely, you know, thinking back to my own journey from childhood and my environment where I grew up as well, I suppose it all sort of plays its part of, of the voice that you, you know, you end up speaking with. And I suppose, yeah, it's a good question, really. I don't think of myself as I just write what I write about and I go to those areas that I'm interested in. Hopefully there's no falseness in what I do. I go to areas need to be spoken about. Where did that come from? Yeah, I was thinking there's many different reasons, I suppose, you know, like I said, the landscape we can come from, the South Wales Valleys, it was that sense of, so it was being the end of the dog and being fighting for everything you had to have on a practical level and then being a writer in that was a sense of you know being 18 or 19 20 and you know people thought you were crazy because you wanted to be a poet and then you wrote and <laughs> yeah. most things 
you develop a bit of a, a bit of a chip on your shoulder, a bit of an advocacy of bollocks to them, I'm gonna do it type of syndrome, which I still have actually, which is worrying at fifty-four. So I saw so that and then there's my home environment, I think, you know, the appearance influenced you and um we were a very working class family. My mother stopped working when me and Nick were born, dad was a builder, and you know, very normal sort of working class life. I don't know how me and Nick ended up stepping outside of obviously we say a normal job and that try and Shout about words, really. But hmm. my mother was always a very, she was a vegetarian before it was sort of trendy, really. And uh, she always fought for animal rights and the environment and always writing off and um, signing petitions. That felt as true in your own life, I suppose, definitely. And so I think that influenced me about being aware of the world. And I was bullied in school a lot from the age of about nine, I just remember. And I never really did much about it. And I think that gave me a, a rage inside my head that I, I really hated injustice. And I hate to see bullying and on societal levels and personal levels. I'm very aware of that with power hierarchies and them and us. You know, the fragile and the, the different are always picked on, I suppose. So I think... That's where writing came from. Like I said, sort of a rage because I didn't really fight back all those years of being bullied and shouted down and you know, all those things that scar you as a child. Absolutely, young person. Um, pen became a bit of my, I suppose, a weapon. Yeah. And uh, and then obviously you go into the world and I studied sociology in Swansea University and I just got interested in all those areas of society and what you list really. You know that list, as you said, goes on and on. Marginalised, disenfranchised people who are sort of neglected by society and. And we've seen that now, I think, in the pandemic, you know, the way it's panning out and who is dying from it, and mm. who is affected, can't work. It's all very well to stay at home baking bread, but when, when you haven't got any money, what do you do about work? And, you know, it's all a bit, even though it's some great moments of togetherness, it almost seems sort of a huge isolated world that everyone's trying to scrabble just to survive. You know, it's almost like going back a couple of hundred years. That's my overdramatic vision of it. I do think there's elements of that. You know, you see news reports of people stuck in the tower block in London. Yeah, so, um, oh, sorry, I got off the subject there. <laughs> I've always been, you know, just a few pivotal moments of certain bands or certain plays or films when you were younger just sort of touch upon you and give you a knock to where you want to go as a, as a writer. So a mixture of lived experience, my own vision of what writing should be, you know, with the people I read. Because like I said, I, I was never really literary. I was terrible at school didn't like English. I really hated English. <laughs> Got terrible fear of it, you know, and um, Shakespeare and all that. And I suppose then the people I gravitated towards writing-wise just sort of saved me in a way. The Jack Kerouac's Emily Dickinson and Sylvia Plath. They seem quite cliched now, but when you were 19, 20 in the valleys, it was radical. Pick up on things like that, Albert Camus and um, yeah. Sartre and Thinking back, which is that's a long time ago now, yeah, 35 years, in conclusion, I never set out to say, I'm going to write about this or that. Just sort of comes to me. For example, I wrote a play which only had one read and we couldn't get it off the ground. Do you know the story of David Cato? Yes. I saw this. It was previewed at the Hay on Wye Festival. Oh, that's right. You yes, did. I was there. Oh, you, you came up to that? I was there. It, oh, yeah. it was terrible because if you remember, it was Katie's hand still rehearsing and sound checking. That was and right. We also had, unbeknown to me, there were a huge fraction of really white-wing Christians there who um, <laughs> were waiting for it. Uh, yeah, came up to me afterwards and dressed in biblical passages and all this. Oh, God. Plus, we only had four days of rehearsal, as you could imagine, as you saw, really. It was quite a nightmare, really, to do it. Anyway, you know, that story of David Cato, I, I read about that many years ago and it just affected me, this sense of such a beautiful man just destroyed by those who feared him, really. And I just felt, well, what can I do about that? All I can do is read, write about it, I suppose, and to be a witness, as Albert Camus said. I worry sometimes they come to me and I feel I just need to try and write about it. I write about things that I suppose get me in my gut, if that makes sense. So, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, sorry, I've rambled <laughs> on. <laughs> That's um, great, thanks. You mentioned at the start when you introduced yourself that you are a writer, but you equally think of yourself as a facilitator and a practitioner within the community. And you've got a really impressive repertoire doing that work. I was researching you last week and you've done extensive work within Welsh communities, with young offenders, care homes. Homes, working with people with mental health issues. Do you consider yourself a jack of all trades or do you think that, you know, being a facilitator and, you know, working in the community, is that part and parcel of being a writer? Yeah, I mean, it's part of my writing, I think. You know, not every writer wants to do that sort of work or is comfortable doing that, etc. at all, you know. Again, it goes back a bit to the time in Swansea University. I suppose I really got excited by that notion of sociology and all that, uh, what made it up. So then stepping out into the real world from university, I worked then for, I was writing, but I was never really saying I'm a writer then. I worked in nursing homes, mental health units with young offenders who ended up actually robbing my flat once in the oh, no. day, which was 
yeah, that was quite an eye opener for a, a young idealist um, Welsh Bally person. And he was in the Burden Bay, which was a bit of a culture shock for me. And I work with young offenders and nursing aides, you know, all these jobs that zero hours now people struggle to survive on. I suppose that gave me that grounding of that world. And I always would rather work as a care assistant than say a job in a bank, an office work, etc. I needed people. I enjoyed that. So then I suppose when I had a bit more time with writing, I wanted to go back into those communities, I suppose, uh, as a starting point. Because I just feel, again, it's the sort of, uh, as you said, marginalised people. Perhaps you don't think that words and poetry and art is for them. I believe it probably it is. And, and we all should have that voice and that democratic right to shout about what we've lived. So again, maybe I do get a little bit of that. You know, as that chip on my shoulder, you know, leading the crusade then, because I, I value that and I would rather do that, I suppose, than teach students how not to write in some bullshit university writing course or something. Yeah. I would rather, you know, I've worked a lot in Pontypool Hospital, Caligon, which is a mental health security unit. And the afternoons there were, I've had and shared with, you know, with this amazing people sharing their poems and songs. And yeah, I feel as where words should live. I feel alive myself provokes me in my own practice. So I, I do sound a bit like an crusade. Again, it's something you just fall into a bit like yourself. Really. As you said, you fall into things that are important to you, but it's sometimes a beautiful accident that you end up working in that field a little bit. You know, again, not a huge choice, and I've never done it for money. It's obviously pays and helps, but it'd be easier if you were teaching at the university, etc., or whatever. So jack of all trades, I know I was getting a bit nervous in that phrase. I like to think I can turn my hand, yeah, and I can walk into a, any environment and feel like, hopefully, and I'm going into a park prison. Quite difficult environment. I don't know if you've taken any work in uh, prisons yourself. Have you ever done No, that? no, I haven't. No, sorry. You know, you go into this room and oh, one little window and ten men there with their arms folded, <laughs> staring at you, thinking, you're not going to get poetry to me, matey. And then, but by the end, some of the stories that you hear and people give you that little glint into their lives, it's always really amazing and life-affirming and again it's where the words live really so I feel alive it's an important part of work to do in that field you know and um, so as a writer yeah I mean some people just stay in their garrets and it's a different type of you know a lot of Welsh writers wouldn't touch that for the work and that's up to them to me it's, it's important work and it's just spread it is a messianic spreading the message that we as has proved as we were talking about that the power of words and the importance of um, articulation and telling our story at this time we live into, you know, how words can really change people's lives. I, I, I still believe that, I suppose, deep down after 35-odd years of writing, in answer to your question, like this part of the way I write, really, and, you know, before I leave, which I know we'll chat about in a bit, but that came from one of those workshops, really, one of those sessions. Yeah. Um, not in a voyeuristic way, just literally, I just thought this story needs to be told, so... Um, but, but I never go in looking for stories, nothing like that. I, I may write a poem, obviously, about how fetching or moving something was. I don't know if you ever read Gillian Clark, Miracle on St. David's Day. That's right. That's her recollection of going into a nursing home, you know, oh, right. sharing a poem and having everyone's reactions to it. Yeah. So, so what I'm going to say is, yeah, I never go in as a voyeur. Yeah. But, you know, obviously, you can't help but be moved sometimes or, you know, just these amazing moments that makes you feel alive as a human, really. That you need to write books. So. Yeah, so, you know, linked on to that point then, you're a bit of a pioneer for the arts and health movement. I don't know what pioneer. Well, I mean, you've done a lot of work in that field and you've recently been appointed as a resident artist for health by the Royal College of Psychiatrists in Wales. Can you tell us a bit more about that role? It sounds very grandiose, very <laughs> grandiose, but it's... Um, it's a bit ad hoc, really, <laughs> which is great, really. I'd rather it be. It's a bit real, spit and sawdust. You know, it's not like, again, I don't have some big office somewhere and um, flounce around. <laughs> yeah, no, they approached me and um, perhaps because they've seen a little bit of the work I had done, they wanted to change the direction. So they were a very academic sort of um, organisation and they wanted to reach into the communities more of Wales. So, and it was great that they saw the arts as a way into that. So it got many different facets, you know, from me delivering a sort of pressy about my work and some sharing some poems at a conference, etc., which is the easy bit, really. And then the harder bit, I suppose, is working in communities, and we've worked with the Alzheimer's Society Cymru on a dementia project, and then developing this new project of work looking at emotional resilience in schools with young people. Obviously, because of the coronavirus, that's happened be stopped in it so which again is great to be involved with that so me and another writer we're going to go into schools and basically run sessions looking at how poetry and writing can be used to i suppose embolden our emotional and 
mental health really um, and schools are up for that so I think that's really a big step forward you know it's not just the lip service to health and well-being which it can be a little bit like that it's a little bit of a trend isn't it health and well-being Mm-hmm. Let's all stand on one leg and recite Shakespeare for a morning. <laughs> you know, it can be a little bit tick boxy, but when it's done properly, I just think it's such an important and obviously, again, this has proved the fragility of our mental health as a, as a nation and as a society. So, um, huge things will be a massive fallout from this as well of our people's mental health and stability and how we interact with each other. It's, oh, I don't know where to start with it, really. So that little bit of work with the World College, yeah, we hope to just keep it going. And I, I try and get a lot of other people involved, other writers, you know, to share readings and to do the work. But obviously funding is always a problem with these sort of projects. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think it's really brave of them. I think they're the only sort of Royal College, because um, it's a Royal College, which I didn't understand, a midwifery or oncologist or all okay. sorts of them. So it's the only one who's got a sort of a artist in residence in Britain. So they're, they're quite radical, really. Really. Oh, and, wow. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's quite, I think it's moving in the right direction again. Things that, you know, you and I have been doing for years really of using the arts in that way. I think people are waking up to it a little bit. And it's, again, sometimes it's a bit, you know, shoot, the government will say, oh, but socials prescribe it. You check that out, which again, when it's done properly, I think can be really powerful. But again, it needs a bit of an infrastructure. Yeah. It, it needs, it needs money and, and funding and people to make it work. You can't just say, oh, go to a dance group on a Tuesday evening if you've got depression, except the idea behind it is good, but I just think we need to work work together. I don't know how we do that sometimes with the, with the present society, you know, that, that we live within. It's, it is all very fractured, isn't it? Uh, and everything has been run down and, you know, funding has been cut, etc. So I got off the subject. So for the Royal College to take a bit of a move, I guess I just think it's going to take time, but it's, it's finding its ways into, uh, it's like going into the arteries of society a little bit. And if you've got such a powerful sort of agency as, as themselves, I think it, it can make a little difference. So I'm hoping that we can start with the school project. It's called Mind Medicine, and I'm really looking forward to doing that. Oh. It's like a pilot project. Yeah, okay. so sounds good. There we are, anyway. So, <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, but like I said, everything does seem a little bit on hold. Um, and then the other little, just quick little thing I'm doing with them as well is creating this sort of interview with all the psychiatrists who want to be in Wales, um, to, just to show the, the massive diversity of experience of cultures who are working in Wales. And it's really eye-opening like, of who becomes, I suppose, a psychiatrist. We've got that image and we have a white coat, a middle, middle-aged male, probably white male. And um, it's just really interesting seeing all these different people from different cultures and countries who come work in Wales. So that's that's quite a really powerful project. Hopefully it will inspire another generation to become, you know, um, we're going to create an exhibition. There's lots of different strands to it, all a bit, like I said, a bit haphazard. That's just the way it's working. So it's quite nice to put on my CV, yes. Yeah. It sounds quite posh. <laughs> play Before I Leave earlier on. Um, that was inspired by your work with the Cumtaf Choir in Merthyr, is that right? Yes, that's right, yes. So yeah. that, that, that's Do you know it? Just from researching, I know, uh, have you also done within that piece of work something with the Forget Me Not Choir? Yes, that's right, yes, um, which was after, really. The play was based in part on the memories and experiences of the members of the Cumtaf Choir, what they shared with you, is that right? It was, but not um, in quite a general term. It okay. Terms it was because of just a practicalities and sort of confidentiality, etc. I did talk to a group of carers, particularly who were very open in telling me their struggles and their 
support networks and how they got through things. Yes. So that was helpful. I never really talked so as much. I just sat in on the uh, ah, choir rehearsal. We said, yes. We felt that was the best way forward with it. That started off again up in Merthyr on the Tuesday afternoon. There's no rain. <laughs> I went to do a little session in the rugby club and the choir were there. And I was going to share some poems and get them to think about writing a song. That's right, the choir. So I shared the poems and then we didn't get very far. Everyone was chatting, which was which was lovely, you know. And I thought, oh, I, I'm not going to go and I just want to sit and listen. And I just sat there and listened to them sing. And it was just, again, one of those earth-shattering moments of life. Tears started down my eyes. I don't know why. Well, obviously I know why. It's that emotional connection with music and people who can't remember perhaps their partner's name and yet they know every single word of yeah. We Never Walk Alone. Yeah, so that's how it started. And then I did find a bit of resistance, actually. It was interesting. A few people I had talked to in the article, because I started writing that in 2000, 2014, perhaps. You know, people sort of sniggered about it a bit and said, that's not a play, that's not interesting. Yeah. Which is bizarre, really, how it's, how it's unfolded now with uh, dementia choirs and the research into it. And Vicky McClure did a documentary on BBC about choirs and dementia. It's become quite, you know, well-known and powerful, and people talk about it a lot, I suppose, music, dementia, and, you know, supporting people. Yeah, you know, it was, uh, I can't remember now if it was 1970s or 1980s when the term reminiscence theatre first came about by a playwright and director called Pam Weiser, I think her name was. And that was, I guess, more popular during the 80s, maybe. It sort of filtered off a bit. But I mean, forget me not, productions roots are in reminiscence theatre and reminiscence projects. So I've witnessed firsthand the power and the impact that that work can have. So yeah, it's interesting that it would have met resistance at the start of the project. Why do you think that was? I, I really don't know. I don't know if it perhaps it seemed a little bit naive, maybe on my behalf, or innocent sort of story. You know, some of these stereotypes, they're all a bit, you know what I mean, slightly elitist perhaps sometimes. Mm. I was trying to tell a work-class story a bit, I suppose, like Paul Monty or, you know, Billy Elliot type of story. And that's where I saw the sort of, Play really in that in that genre of storytelling. Brassed off those sort of films that I, I really love those films. I think they are really you know, they tell a human story. And um, there was a little bit of that. And then I, I don't really know why really because if people have sat in on any of these sessions, which I've always tried to get people to come and just you know meet the groups and just because I remember when the actors came up from the play too and they sat in on the rehearsal. It was it was amazing. Well, yeah, and many actors obviously haven't been in that environment before blew their minds really and um, and then I remember pitching it to that's not theatre Wales and I didn't think they would be interested in thing. but but John McGrath he could see a story there so he really helped support it really a lot along the way and then we had a show in uh, a dementia friendly show in where we invited all the different choirs in from, from Wales really to come and see it to me again it was a little bit mixture of my, my writing and then my community were coming together so I was really quite proud of that moment yeah. it was where I felt my writing was going and, and, and what and the stories I wanted to tell Shall I live my life upon my knees? Shall I crawl to just survive? From the moment of conception, you label me a sinner, a fraud, a deception. My son, age five, tells me that he loves everyone on this planet. A sinner, a failure, strangled sunflowers seeking sun, drowned dandelions drifting down. Even the trees tremble in tired gaze. Because we're all too scared. We're all too scared of their crucifixions and olive branch verisimilitude. On my knees, facing Mecca to make me feel better. Torpid tongues speak in silence. And your wine is not the blood and your bread not bones. They are mere physicalities. And we, we are meat. Festering sores on junk bait skin, simmering salvation, spitting within the flesh, the blood, the bones, the teeth, linking arms against our impending death, sonic connections and passing thoughts. What makes us human are not your rules, but the tiny step, the reaching hand, our scarred chests as verbs are vulnerable. As I flounder, I drag, I fall, I live, I die. Crushed beetles under nature's souls. I was. God feared Penance pulled, sin drowned, before I could say my nine times table. And in the child's silence of playing alone to the dementia-shrunk brain of our old age, we make the tracks that shape the flow. No Adam and Eve in the garden, just breast and neck, stone axe and found flint arrowhead. And only when you have seen the stars and frozen nights, sucked vitamins through dawn's shimmering sunlight, touched the bleeding bark in autumnal fire throat, Watch penicillin course through sickened veins. Will you acknowledge our significant insignificance? 
and I don't need morality from a historical story. The darkest habit is the inability to think, so suck upon the nipples of deceit, and they will never fail to provide, yet will always leave you hungry for more and more, as the milk of righteousness drowns our reason, a vertigo of the heart in the face of another. So I am godless in the skies and godless in my heart. I walk without scaffold, naked unto the sun. I walk, I limp, I run, I die. Like the first three minutes of this universe. I am uncontrollable. I am desperate. Godless. I am earth. I am fire. I am water. I am air. No, ro no rockets, red glare. No mosque, tannoy. Just a stuttering soliloquy. A bulletproof symphony. I walk, I limp, I run, I live, I die. I walk, I limp, I run, I live, I die. I wonder if we could maybe talk a little bit now about your poetry, in particular your collection of poems called Darkness is Where the Stars. Am I right in thinking this predominantly about the treatment or mistreatment of women in religion? It's not totally about that. There are two poems in there which caused a little bit of offence to people, I suppose. But, but actually, it's a strange book, really, because it's quite personal as well. There's a lot of poems there about living in a domestically violent relationship for seven years. So I was writing a lot about that, as well as sort of anti-religion poems. But there are poems in there about, of course, the treatment of religion, of how women are treated, religion's views on homosexuality, etc. So I was trying to, I was really concerned about that power that they had over people's minds. So I was trying to write about those things that time. Um, it was 2009, I think, that was, which sounds a long time ago now. There's a lot of themes in there. I, I was more worried, actually, about kind of my own personal story of being in a violent relationship, really. That was quite difficult to write about because, A, having two sons from our relationship, and I knew they would be reading the poems, obviously, and, um, and being a male in the valleys, but talking about these things, is um, it was quite difficult then in those days. Uh, I think things have slightly changed, maybe, now. I had never really talked about it. So some of the reviews described it as dark yet beautiful with an underlying hope. Would you say the underlying hope bit was sort of in relation to your own circumstance? Is that the angle you were trying to go with it? It's a bit of both, really, I think. Yeah, I, on the religion side, I've really been quite inspired by people. Well, I've gone off a little bit now. Dawkins, he, he drives me a bit crazy now. But, but Christopher Hitchens and those sort of people who were speaking out at the time sort of stand up to religion because religion seems that all religions seem to have this... Um, sense of ring fence and they can say what they want and they can't be touched with that thing. Whereas if, a, you say, a political party said, women must do this, or, mm -hmm. you know, homosexuals are sinners, we wouldn't tolerate it. And yet, because it's a religion, yeah. it's what I wanted to try and be quite provocative with that, really. And um, and then on a personal level, it was a bit about it and trying to reestablish my life. So the idea that I suppose you can only see those stars because it's dark, it's a very simple metaphor, I suppose, but it's, it's kind of through trauma, really, and, um, and being yeah. able to write about it on a societal level and personal. What's your thoughts on religion generally? Do you have any? Um, well, I don't consider myself a religious person at all. That's not to say I don't have any faith in something, but I put my hand up and say I don't don't know what what my beliefs are but I certainly don't put them in an, any type of organized religion um, but interestingly I've got lots of friends that are, you know Christians or last week actually I had a male pastor Steve Evans on the podcast he describes himself as a pro voice for the marginalized groups and he also describes himself as a feminist um, which I found interesting and we talked at length about that. He had a fascinating viewpoint largely based on his own personal experiences. So he was brought up by a single mum and his grandmother. They sort of shared uh, bringing him up. Yeah, that is why he, you know, based on that experience, why he feels like a feminist and he talks about that in his blog which is quite an interesting read it's called you're only feminist because it's cool and while i can imagine that there probably are women and feminists out there that might take uh, exception to what he's saying and might feel like maybe he has no right to be speaking on their behalf he makes some interesting points about it is the topic of religion or women in religion something that you have first-hand knowledge of or experience of or was it an area of interest maybe that you wanted to explore and deconstruct you know through the, the magic of words yeah, yeah. Not, not really um, personal experience I suppose apart from just living in, the, in the society and seeing the abuse of women by religion and you know how we all think it for granted if it's a choice or not about women wear a veil and yet 
uh, anyway, I'm just using one example now where but no one would ever say, how about the men wear blinkers, for example. Just, that, that's a bit trite. But you know what I mean? It's like, if you take a lot of religious thoughts right back to the basics, I just can't understand how they can sort of yeah, justify it, I suppose. But we end up being tiptoeing around so much. It just sort of um, really got to me a bit, you know, and my middle son is gay and so I really detest religions generally obsession with uh, calling people same-sex relationships sinners and you know the, the horrific things that happen attacks and beatings and it, it was those sort of two areas really that really affected me that I wanted to write about and again it's trying to voice that sense to me with things about injustice really slightly personal I suppose having the son that I worry about obviously that he's going to be attacked or judged or bullied etc you know and then on societal level I was just trying to write about certain things that um, made me a bit mad as simple as that really and wanted to write a book yeah we should all be equal as simple as that shut the door put out the light dream of yesterday keep everything out of sight first the silence the atrophic acts of attention seeking then the questions of a foam frothed mouth of power and control. Then the eyes, a stone stare of schizophrenic electric. My home is a cage that I cannot escape, only endure for the sake of my children and their need for safety. Scared to answer the phone in case it is my own mother. Scared to put a picture up of my family in the living room. As you, isolate my identity and feed it to your insecurity because I am a nobody, a shit, a fake, a runt, a cunt, a bender, a loser, a nothing, a mammy's boy, a doll with a penis, a sexless mannequin, a father, a man, a human. Yet I am everyone who has ever felt the nails in the cheek, the kick, down the stairs, the stinging slap upon shaved skin, the belittling tongue of torpid torture that never sleeps, that never sleeps, just waits at my side for the wounds to bleed and then licks and then licks and then licks until I can no longer heal and so I limp, fat, bloated belly, passive receptor of all your hatred. And then I crawl, a crushed beetle, on all fours, to the door, to escape, to, to... But I stop, and I listen. Dad! 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 I hear my son's cry. I stand up, I breathe, I blank out your noise, cradle his warm body. I close the door, I put out the light. I wait for tomorrow but keep everything out of sight. That brings me on nicely to my next question, really. So the last time we saw each other, I did a project with Forget Me Not called Welsh and Proud, which was a school songwriting project, but based on LGBTQ plus themes. And it piloted over five schools in Cardiff, one of which was a Catholic school. I went in, I did a day-long workshop with these five different schools. They all came up with a song. It was supposed to be a positive anthem, so not talking about I'm gay and my life's so tough because I get bullied and you know it wasn't supposed to have that vibe it was supposed to be love who you are treat everyone equally that kind of ethos about it you very kindly offered to be a judge um well for the lyric aspect of it we had a couple of musicians in as well listening to the music and that was an interesting project because what I liked about that is the school that won was Mary Immaculate Catholic School the teacher was really open to having that project when a lot of faith schools in Cardiff. It was funded by the Arts Council. Literally all they had to do was give me a day with a group of their pupils. And many of them just knocked me back based on the theme of the project, yeah. which is a bit sad. Really? Again, be fearful that you might you know, stir something up, which is, yeah, their little veneer of uh, respectability. Yeah. When was that, Clary? I remember doing that. It was about... 2014, I think, maybe 2015. Uh, oh, right. Yeah, the winning song then got screened. We did like a music video to go with it and it got screened at Cardiff Pride 2015, I think it might have been. You had very kindly donated a signed photo of the Mannix as well. So it was lovely because the winning school got up on stage and, you know, they got presented this photograph and, yeah, they had their moment in the spotlight, which was really nice. 
Enjoy life the way you want to. Make the world fit around you, not the other way around. Live life the way you want to. You can't lie to yourself, so be proud. Sit there staring at the wall, just waiting for someone to call. You may think that nobody's safe, but trust me, somebody cares. You're waiting for an answer from the person within. It's time to take a chance now. It's time for the win. So let's rejoice. So important, isn't it? It's the thing we haven't talked about is Brexit as well, amongst all this. And I think yes. the things we're talking about, intolerance and uh, all these uh, other things of society how it changed Brexit, wasn't it? You know, race, hate, disability, crime, all went up after Brexit, didn't they, I think? So definitely, that is so important in schools to, for the next generation to be more inclusive and more tolerant and more... Well, to, I don't like the word tolerant. That, that almost, that's almost like saying, oh, they have to bend to go a certain way. When we did that songwriting project, part of the discussion around words was difference between tolerance and acceptance. And that's oh, right. something we explored in great detail before yes. they actually started writing the lyrics, which I think is really important to sort of differentiate yeah. between those two things. And yes. so I, you wouldn't remember because I was a spotty-faced teenager at the time, but I actually first met you in around about 1993 or 94. So oh, I, I was great. about 14. I was a member of the youth dance and theatre groups at Blackwell Miners Institute back when Margaret Rooney was the arts development officer. I love Margaret. She was lovely. She's fab. And uh, you ran the Young Writers Group at the time. Yes, I did, yeah. Yeah, I wrote lots of poetry at the time. um, And I remember speaking to you and Margaret said, oh, you need to speak to Patrick if that is an interest of yours. You know, join the Young Writers Group. And we spoke briefly, but I'm sure it like clashed with the night that I was doing dance, (laughs) which makes me laugh now because I did not pursue a career in dance. Definitely two left feet. But if I'm being honest, I probably thought maybe joining a writing group was a bit less cool than doing something like dance or drama. I went to did performing arts at Crosskeys College. I went on to go to drama school. I quickly found out that doing drama and dance was not cool at all. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But then I remember when you did Everything Must Go and it was touring Britain. I can't remember the venue. But I saw it, I recognised your name, I remembered you, and I got tickets, yeah, and I watched it, and I was a Mannix fan, so I was really, really excited by the fact that you'd sort of used, you know, music, and yeah, it was, you know, a play for me that almost explored the cliché of this working-class Welsh hero. Once upon a time was a mockery and a joke, but then, thanks to Britpop and cool Cymru music in the mid to late 90s, all of a sudden... You know, it was cool to be a working class Welsh, working class hero, you know. And I love, I loved how the the play explored that. I actually, um, one of the speeches from Everything Must Go, I used to use as a, a monologue. (laughs) <laughs> for, oh, wow. for one of my audition pieces. I can't remember the whole monologue, but it was the one that ended with Bora fucking da. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that, that was the opening speech. The yeah, opening speech, yeah. And I'd say it, it did have a big impact on me. I went to drama school and all of a sudden, you know, you kind of... I was proud of my working class roots, where I was from, but I also, as an actor, someone that wanted to maybe work in the West End, and that didn't happen, but became made apparent to me that get rid of your accent and, you know, just try and speak with a neutral English accent if you want to get roles within these sort of plays. And I probably did turn my back on my roots, for a time being anyway, certainly not in my writing, but... 
in how I presented myself. Also, I had just come out, but I was still very much in the closet. So there was a lot that I was keeping inwards. But things like poetry and watching your show, you know, it did have a big impact on me. I think for a brief moment, I probably regretted not having joined the Young Writers Group back in the mid-90s after I, I, after I saw your play. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I think drama still for a bit more, you know, yeah, you know yes. Uh, I, I mean, maybe you've had conversations like this with your own sons, but what would you say to a sort of troubled, lost, unsure of themselves, 14, 15-year-old, maybe wanting desperately to have a creative outlet, but labouring under the misapprehension that something like writing or the arts is uncool? Yeah, it's very good. You know, I have three sons, and they all have different phases of I am the uncoolest ever to my youngest, and yet, you know, my older sons then they come back a little bit thinking, oh, you know, he's not too bad afterwards. He's mm-hmm. all right. Like we all go with our parents, I suppose. And um, yeah, advice is a thing. But I've never really pushed them. They're quite independent little souls of where they go. I'm sure you do. You, know, you offer these couples of, you know, things in life for them. But that's all we are as scaffolding, I think, sometimes. Off they go and become that building that they have to be as well, you know. But with regards to advice, I suppose it's, well, to me, it's just that sense of this, you know, no one can tell you that it's not in the way when you write that it's yours. You know, especially, I know the world has changed so much, I suppose, you know, with the digital media and Instagram, TikTok, all these places where we think we're expressing ourselves. You know, maybe I sound a bit old-fashioned, but I'm not really sure. If it's like an echo chamber sometimes, and perhaps it's not the voice that we think it is. And so with writing, I think songs, acting, painting, etc. I suppose it's something a bit, to me, it's, it's a bit more tangible. And I think it's a way of controlling our world, really, and saying that this is what I think, what I feel, this is me. And it lives on. It, someone said, if you write every day, you're a writer. I really believe that. And so I suppose, it, you know, without being preachy or 50-something, it's something along those lines that is tangible and no one can take it away. Whereas Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, they can take away your expression, really. Down. But there's room for it. I know I'm on Twitter, don't get me wrong, but to me, something about writing a poem on a bit of paper is much more real and, uh, yeah, tangible. So there we are. I think it's about owning your life, owning your voice, and you may need social media, I suppose, in a way to get it out. Agreed. And, and, and blogs, I think, is quite liberating. Didn't have that as a young writer myself. You never get a book published if you tweet, I suppose, would you? Well, probably these days you would, but you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's something about the preciousness of writing is just, I still feel it's, um, yeah, it can do something. Suppose with my background with acting yeah. and music, as I said, the writing came first when I was younger. And when I was very young, I wrote poetry. As I learned how to play the guitar and started writing music, I always used to think of it as writing musical compositions for my poems. And that was very much the approach I took. I do whatever the mood takes me now, but I very much used to write lyrics first and then I would attempt to find a piece of music that I thought aptly reflected the vibe that I was going for. You yourself have released two albums that combine spoken word with music. Is it? Yes, uh, three, three, is it? Three. Okay, so I've got here Tongues for a Stammering Time. Yeah. It was an album um, yeah. that you collaborated on with loads of musical legends like James and Bradfield, your brother, Nicky Wire, and the inspirational, fantastic Amy Wodge. Steeped in indignity, parading cultural identity, staple sexuality. I've got your most recent release. I've actually just ordered it, but I haven't listened to it yet. Renegade Psalms? Yes, that's right, with John. Which yes. is just, just to him. And the previous one was back in 1999, actually. It was called uh, Commemoration Amnesia. And that was with different... Um, yeah, so it was two albums with lots of different musicians. That was just the way. And then the third one was just, just me and John Robb, sort of... Okay. Um, uh, he was a great artist and a great eclectic mix of... Uh, yeah. He just never stops, you know. <laughs> I don't know his woman. He's a uh, Mancunian and just always coming up with projects, ideas. He, you know, plays with bands. He interviews people in Glastonbury and all these things. So, yeah, we, we just sort of got to walk in. He was going to release it. I was working with another musician and it just didn't work out. We just didn't gel. And mm-hmm. so I, I said, John, could, could you just release it as a spoken word? You know, like a, like a, a very simple John Cooper Clark, no 
music, really. He said, I said, well, I'll do the music for it. And then we just got talking. So it grew into that sort of sense of um, a bit of a concept album, a bit of a state of the nation type of feel to it, really. That's where it came from in the end, quite hopefully looking at society's injustices again and trying to shout about them a little bit. Not Duffy, Shakespeare, Taliesin, or Angelou. Because you, you see, you're in set two. And those words are not for you. For we need to prepare you for the workplace situation. CVs, letters, forms, and basic comprehension. To make you ready for zero-hour contracts, minimum wage, and strict regimentation. No time for Miller, Sassoon, or Ishiguro. Oh no, those words are not for you, because you, boys and girls, are in set two. No room for character motivation, metaphor, or Barrett Browning's sonnet. So interesting, I listened to, I don't know, is it the first track on there? It's on YouTube, To Be or Not To Be? Oh, that one about to be or not is the um, yeah about the English literature in schools. Is that the one? Yes, um, that's all right. Yeah. Yes, which fits into both our lives, I suppose. Yeah, and it was based on my youngest son when he was in school because he was in set three for English. They wouldn't let him do English literature. I just thought this is disgusting, you know. And the head of English at his school just wouldn't back down. And so, yeah, it was really quite upsetting, really, for me. You know? I, I thought I'd failed him. You know, as a 15-year-old, he wasn't that bothered, I suppose. Yeah. But <laughs> all those things that he missed out on, simply because he wasn't deemed in the top set. I just thought he was a really elitist view of education. I don't know. You said your daughter was 14, is she? Yeah. So yes, she is. She's in a special school, though. So she's right. learning at her own pace. I mean, the education that she's getting is good. There are areas of it that we wish we could tweak to our own ideas of what it should be but they are very much open to a conversation so if you say her reading level seemed to have peaked and now it's dipping then they will address that and do extra time reading and send loads of reading poems so in that respect it's great different to you know mainstream comprehensive yeah i remember doing english literature poetry appreciation and getting not a terrible mark i maybe got a c for a piece of work i was quite shy so i didn't really argue the point but i felt that it was an injustice then because it was poetry appreciation and i had given it my opinion i had backed up my statements and then to be told no that is not what the poet's saying i thought that's not what poetry appreciation is about this is what i've read it as and this is how i've eloquently put it down and (laughs) lots of red crosses through it yeah which destroys all your confidence and then and yet put you off next time reading a poem probably exactly Yeah. Uh, yeah exactly but and then not to have it the choice at all was just amputated so that poem came out and again I think it's a class thing isn't it you know um, in the private school education that wouldn't happen and so it was just like saying oh certain people are not worthy of literature and I just thought oh apparently quite a few schools were doing that it's to do with lead tables and passes and all stuff like that and I just thought you know my child's education was being played with really so that's on this which is about, as you mentioned you know anti-monarchy there's a poem yeah. about bedroom tax and that people all those terrible sad deaths and people taking their own lives because of it 20 pound that's all it was taking their own lives for that um, because they couldn't afford it and what's that a tip for an MP to a taxi driver or something and it just again those stories of just ping me and make me um, pick up my pen really and um, and so I would written a poem then I would record it send it to John he would come up a bit like if you said you'd come up with a sort of soundscape to it really and see if it worked and if one or two didn't you know, we would back around with different versions, etc. It was a great process, really, and then we just, it was, it was lovely to see an album come out. To what extent do you feel that the music brought the words to life? And you had released your previous albums as a collection of poetry without the music. Yeah. Do you think that it would have had the same impact? I'm not really sure what impact, really. It's still, it's still quite a bit of a niche thing, really, with poetry and spoken word albums. But I think it breaks down the barriers because people still have that sense of, oh, poetry is a little bit slim volume. Perhaps in the bookshop, you know, a few people are going to buy it and it's all a little bit um, of a class, perhaps, <laughs> I think there is that sort of vision, and, that, and certain poets still perpetuate that, you know, as if there's only one way to write poetry. 
you know, there is that sort of um, mind ethos, really, uh, where life field poetry can be anything. So I think it broke down some barriers between people being open to poetry, should we say, because it's got a soundscape, because it's got, you know, a guitar, and people perhaps will, will give it a go. And then the downside of that is the poetry establishment don't really think it's worthy of poetry. So I'm sort of, um, I would rather have a spoken word album than some little book that I've had to compromise and, and tweak my poems so you, there's no life in them yeah. to get public. You know what I mean? Yeah. So if it was a poetry book, I, yeah, I don't really think, not that the album's had a huge impact, but people haven't listened to it. You know, Steve Lamack played a little bit of it, which is quite weird to get something of a spoken word on his from an unknown poet. So, you know, I'm not into Brady Johnson, John Cook Clark, Kate Tempets. Again, great poets. All, so they are out there, I think, spoken word artists working with music, quite the, the liberating. And it's always been there, you know, 60s, I suppose, Patti Smith. That sort yeah, of them. definitely. Like, yeah, it's, it's still poetry. It's got that ethos of being a little bit dry, a little bit, oh, let's all have a polite clap at the end. You've been to poetry, I'm sure. And it's just like, I have no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> so, so I cut my losses and go for what, what I need to write. So I think music can give different atmospheres and another way of hearing poetry, I think. It's as simple as that, really. It's not for everyone, but I was really proud of what we did there. So, so thank you for getting a copy of that. I appreciate <laughs> that. Did, did you get a vinyl or the CEO? I got vinyl, you know. There's nothing quite like having something on vinyl, is it? It's funny, it's still, yeah, it still held its power, hasn't it? Finally, Patrick, if we could talk about your most recent book, My Bright Shadow. So this is a book that deals with grief loss and the power of words as i've spoken to you about privately this is a topic that resonates with me personally at the moment my father-in-law lost his fight to dementia three weeks ago Uh, the funeral was last week a friend of mine succumbed to the coronavirus that was nearly two weeks ago now she was only 28 years old she did a lot of work in the community. She was a volunteer for many, many organizations, and she would be the sort of person that would have hundreds of people attending her funeral. So it's such a sad time that it's going to be just close family. Obviously, I understand with the lockdown. We're just going through this now with my own father. So he's nearing the end of his life after a long, lengthy illness with advanced prostate cancer and kidney failure. So It's a topic that is probably affecting a lot of people, what with this pandemic. So when I ordered my copy of this collection of poems, I wasn't sure if I would be able to mentally, you know, read them and take them on board at this point. My father's in St. David's Hospice now in Malpas in Newport, having fantastic care. He's fought bravely for 10 years. He's ultimately decided to withdraw his dialysis treatment. He's taken back the control I guess he's wanted to decide when and how he'll die. I read the book. I think it arrived two days ago. I actually read it cover to cover in one night. It was very, I don't know if uplifting is the word, but it was a series of emotions I needed to feel. I then yesterday picked up a pen and started writing poetry relating to my own situation. So thank you for the inspiration to do that. I imagine during these unprecedented times that's the phrase that keeps getting thrown around isn't it um, that a book a collection of poems like this will speak to so many people like me who can't be with their loved ones who can't be with them anyway full stop but those nearing the end of their life you know that they can't be there they can't hold their hand they can't visit their grieving relatives and give them a hug due to the lockdown what do these poems mean to you I know that they're very personal and deal with loss very close to you. And what kind of advice would you give to someone dealing with loss during these times of uncertainty when perhaps they can't give someone a hug or get the sort of comfort that they need? What you just said is it's home is really heartbreaking. And because my mum as well, she went just to St. David's as well. And I, I can't even drive past her and I was terrible. And even though it was only a temporary in a way, it's not really I remember my mother, but it, it is, you know, as well. So I imagine but then you've got that added sense you can't actually um, go there and I do think it is a positive thing that you know you picked up a pen before the inevitable perhaps because that's what I was doing was writing along my mum's journey really and I just I didn't know if it was the right thing to do but I, I knew I had to I just felt I had to capture certain things of her life and, and what was she was and is oh, it's a tricky one really I have struggled about articulating this one because I wrote it then you know all those poems during and then there were some poems afterwards obviously trying to make sense of it and, and that was just two years ago now in June I don't really have any advice I really don't to be honest I, I just 
it's such a personal thing, isn't it? Such a personal way of no one really could give me advice at the time. I think you know, as we slowly form my mind fade away, and um, but it was her choice. I think, like you said, with, with your dad, that is something that I kept thinking if that, that was me as well. It was hard for us and my dad. You know, they've been married 63 years, so we had to see my mum choose her, her end. You know what I mean? She left the house and um, that was the worst day of my life. Yeah. Oh, so many thoughts for me. And I suppose, again, it's that sense of you hear those voices and those terrible tears in your head almost. And what do you do with them? And some people might paint or sing or go for a run or punch a punch bag. In a way, like when you craft a poem and you write down those feelings, no matter how raw they are, they, they sort of exist there. And it sort of gave me a bit of a something to hang on to and it gave me a, a bit of a, a focus of just put these together really um again the cliche of making sense of it all i don't think i have stuff on my mind drifting back to those last couple of weeks which is sad really and because my mom was 80 and she lived all her other life but then it gets distilled into those last couple of moments which i i try not to go there and, and same with my dad, things. and then a year later, my dad died, and I found him in bed that morning. I keep going back to that moment, and it's interesting that the mind, I can't write about those things yet. So I don't think there's any big advice. It is almost just based that whatever works for you. And again, that sounds inclusionary, but it, it really is true about that. For example, it, it's a silly thing. It's silly, but it's, you know, it, I back onto a mountain. When I would go up there, I found this little, little spot by two trees, and I almost became an altar to me. I still go up there now, and I just sit there, and I just breathe a little bit, and um, it almost became a, a place of meditation to me, you know, um, more than meditation, obviously, trying to process and think thoughts that I needed to think, etc., brush out the things that I didn't need to think. Five years ago, if someone had said oh, about doing that, I would have lots of a bit of a strange thing to do, but those paths take us there in a way, um, so that's all I can say, really. So aside from the writing of it, it's the reality of dealing with those things, like you know, what you were being through with your father and all that going through with your friend. And that's a lot. That's, that's three huge moments to um, process, really, isn't it? So like oh. the mind, you know, how much, how much can, can we take sometimes? And, and by writing those collection of poems, it just gave, again, a sense of, I suppose, control. There's that control, because I don't know about you, but there's a sense of we can't control someone else's life and their choice and their leadiness and and it's very difficult to um, accept that. Mm-hmm. With, with writing, I was just controlling that little page in a way, and I could write what I needed to write. So I rambled on there. It's okay. It's just a difficult <laughs> subject, as you know. If you don't mind me singling one out, the poem that resonated with me particularly is the first poem in the book, In the Words of Men. Oh, really? Yes, and I think... As much as this might sound like a strange thing to say, my mum is healthy, but if, and God forbid, if it had been my mum that had passed away, I can imagine going through things that you describe in the poem with my dad, you know, finding jobs to do around the house and DIY dreams that you never actually do reminded me of how I might be with my dad and also got me thinking about how I might support my own mum through these difficult times. I liked it. I liked that there was no flowery language. It was just almost like a to-do list of how we get through the next day. Um, A practical poem, do you know what I mean? And uh, that one I keep coming back to. Well, thank you. And yeah, you know, it's almost comedic in a way. It's me making up things a bit and my dad would sort of forget about things for a while. And like you said, it's just, just getting us through that day, really, till the next one. How is your mum? Because obviously she can't go and see your dad as well, didn't she? Oh, well, yes. I mean, I say luckily, I don't know. That's probably a very poor choice of phrase, but they are allowing one visitor. The hospice is in lockdown, but they are allowing one visitor. She's a very nervous driver, so my parents live in Crumlin. Not a straightforward road. She tends to drive five-mile radius around Crumlin, you know, Blackwood, Newbridge, Crumlin. That's about it. (laughs) So she's doing this big drive. We can't take her, obviously, because of the lockdown and social distancing. The little bit that we can do at the minute is my brother will go to the house. She'll follow him there. And then five, six hours later, I'll go to the hospice and she'll follow me back to her house. And then I drive home. I'm glad that she has got this time. Does feel a little Mm. bit... The whole thing is unfair, isn't it? Anyone in this situation is unfair. But yeah, it does feel... 
it is heart-wrenching being in the car park and wondering which is his room and not being able yeah. to be there. But then we are doing, you know, things like video chat, you know, things that my father would never do in a million years. He's so anti-technology, <laughs> you know, and phone calls and anything like that. But he, he is doing it. We've had that at least. It's funny how we managed to find a way, which is quite beautiful, really, an ingenious way of human mind. And we make those changes, really, to try and accommodate the terrible situations. The way you described it, it is very beautiful, and however sad that it is terrible. I can still see that there's still that bond, isn't it? There? There's still that making, again, practical, practical sort of solutions. Oh, yeah, that's all we can do sometimes, isn't it? Just little tiny little steps of things, I suppose, to make it work. It's not, I cannot articulate myself. I'm not very poetic there. Oh, yeah, that's been a very difficult part of this little bit to talk oh, about, actually. Now. Thank you for talking about, you know, such personal subjects and it's difficult when things like this affect you so greatly yeah. i was going to ask you but please say if if you feel like it might be a little bit too raw right now i was going to ask you if you could read a poem from that particular book i'm gonna to have to do a very safe one should we say yes of course oh uh, yeah okay then i think i can do this one yeah it's called love sign catkin primrose cherry plum pussy willow Today I got so tired of bullets, stabbings, Trump, Assange, and hashtags. I looked outside my window, and I saw that the sun was shining and blue was in the air. A shimmering wintered light held all things new. So I opened my mouth and spoke of you, catkin, primrose, cherry, plum, pussy willow. The faded winter colors carrying tomorrow in there today, asking nothing. Offering everything. Freedom sits on the frozen branch. A bed, not again. A begin, not an undone. Catkin, primrose, pussy willow, cherry plum. And somewhere, a bird sings. Uh, that was beautiful. Thank you, Patrick. So that was a safe one to read, I think. <laughs> Sorry, thank you. Yeah. Words can almost provide a bit of comfort again. It's those words away from all the bullshit and all the everything that's... Uh, but thanks, anyway. Yeah. Wow, I don't think I've talked as much as this for a while. So thank you for being <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you. It's been great. Yeah, and if you ever want to send a poem, you know, fine, but obviously it's a bit raw at the moment. But uh, I'm no critic and I'm no teacher, <laughs> but I would just respond uh, humanly. So thank you. Thank you for speaking, Barry. Anyway, really, um, you know, it'd be nice to hear more of your work. Maybe there's, there's a collaboration down the line somewhere. Who knows? And then we can Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. That'd be great. I recorded this interview with Patrick back in April of this year. I hope to get it published in May. My father subsequently died on the 2nd of May, so that explains the delay with publishing. I'd like to thank Patrick for all his kind words, though. I have taken his advice and picked up pen and paper, and while the result may read as quite bleak on the page, it was a very cathartic experience for me. I've written two poems and a song, which I'd like to share with you now. Thanks again. This is for my father, Brian Sadler. Black sunshine, unwilling to reflect the light in my tears. Black rainbows, unable to drown out my thundering fears. Empty skies, screaming nothingness in the abyss. Strangled cries rip through remnants of my previous bliss. Each new day, waiting for a violent supernova. Cosmic rays swallowed by black holes in this carcinoma. Now, only one escape. And that is into the black unknown. The end won't be delayed. As it casts its deathly shadow. As it casts is deathly shadow. Death is an eternal emptiness, laughing in the doorway. An unbreakable force lamenting over its former glory days. The world ignores its presence, the welcome that it overstays. Wednesday's conscience and Monday's promises are often underplayed. Death ponders life, something fleeting in the sands of time. Day swallows night, fading 
only just alive. You sit, staring, in silent knowledge, surrendering all hope, mentally preparing, deliberately numb, a vain attempt to cope. Once upon a rhyme, my world collided with space and time, a continuum of beauty from birth till D-Day, a monumentous duty when you watch them slip away, time is not tangible thing and it cannot fly I cannot bend it to my will it's a fourth dimensional life I sit and savor Join us next time on Mouth Off when we interview Simon Lewis, a.k.a. Corporate Christ. Praise the Lord. Gay singer, songwriter, musician, producer, queer indie author and blogger. Lucky Land Slots, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.